From deep in the heart of the swamp, this is Gator Tales, the official podcast of the Florida Gators. Gator Tales is brought to you by UF Health, the official healthcare provider of the Florida Gators. Welcome to Gator Tales. I'm your host, Adam Schick. They say if you want to be the best, you have to beat the best. And while Florida gave Alabama all they could handle in Atlanta, the Crimson Tide proved a bit too tough in the SEC championship. So while Florida won't get to paint any new numbers inside the swamp, they took a step closer to getting to the top of the mountain and will now test themselves against another of college football's best programs in the Cotton Bowl. On today's show, FloridaGators.com senior writers Scott Carter and Chris Harry join us to break down the action in Atlanta, the opportunity ahead in Dallas, the final Heisman resume for Kyle Trask, the NCAA's recruiting sanctions against the football program, the latest on Keontae Johnson, and a PAT about fixing the CFP. Then, we'll dip into our Gator Greats vault and check in with one of the heroes the last time Florida played Oklahoma, wide receiver and two-time national champion David Nelson. But first, the Gators refused to lay down for Alabama in the SEC title game, representing themselves well in defeat at the hands of the seemingly unstoppable rolling tide. So to open our roundtable with a ton of ground to cover, we asked Scott and Chris for their takeaways from Mercedes-Benz Stadium. It it was the kind of game that I think most people who thought Florida had a chance, you you knew it probably was going to play out that way turn into an offensive shootout, and that's exactly what it was, Adam. 98 points, if my math's right, uh, second-highest SEC uh, championship game in history, the Gators. You know, that it was common things we've seen all year that really cost them in the first half. Some key mistakes on third down, being unable to get off the field. Alabama was 7-9 in the uh, on third down in the first half. And they got in that 28 to 10 hole and they were digging out of it and they got to 35 31 and, you know, shut out Alabama in the third quarter, which of all the stats I've seen this year, guys, I think that might be the most impressive. That was only the second quarter all year Alabama hasn't scored. Wow. I mean, that's, that shows you how good Alabama is. And also that Florida was able to, you know, shut them out a period and get back into the game. Uh, but in the end, you know, the things that, you thought Alabama had an advantage of in that game. They played out exactly that way in the final quarter. Devontae Smith had the big touchdown catch. Najee Harris, they had no answer for him in the run game or the pass game. And then Mac Jones had a really nice game, uh, 418 yards. Uh, He did what you kind of expected. And, of course, in the Gators, they did exactly what you also expected. Kyle Trask had another 400-yard game. Kept the Gators in the game. Kyle Pitts, Kadarius Toney, Trayvon Grimes, all the familiar names, except the difference was Alabama had a running game, and they just had more weapons. And both defenses, I mean, you can't say Alabama played any better defense than Florida, I don't think, in this game. I mean, both offenses cruised back up and down the field, and Alabama did force what that fumble that led to the field goal late. Gators had an interception, but immediately fumbled, you know, with the hit on um, Trey Dean. So uh, the main takeaway, Adam, going into that game, I said for Florida, they had to force at least a couple turnovers and let their offense, you know, do what it usually does. The offense did what it usually does, but the turnover just never came. And that, that 
kept Alabama. They're just such an explosive offense. So, uh, a disappointing way for Florida to end the season with the back-to-back losses, obviously, to LSU. And Alabama, um, and now they'll regroup uh, for the Cotton Bowl and, and try to finish on a positive note. Um, but, again, it was it was, it was was another step forward. They got to Atlanta, but they, they weren't able to win it. My takeaway from that game, Adam, was that all the stars came out to play, mm-hmm. both sides, and those stars were on offense. Um, what was it? Nick Saban raised some eyebrows early in the season. It used to be defense that you had to win in college. Now it's offense, and he's 100% right. But my God, um, let's start on Alabama side. You got Mac Jones, you got Nigel Harris, and, and you got Devontae Smith um, combined for well over 400 yards of total offense from scrimmage. And Mac Jones is the one handing to it or throwing it to him. I mean, and then the star power on Florida side, they weren't going to be in a game unless Kyle Trask played a really good game. Kyle Pitts came to play. Kadarius Toney, uh, you know, just the, the big play after big play. Um, I think the key sequence of the game happened at the end of the first half. And mm-hmm. I know Dan Mullen took a lot of heat for scoring fast. I don't blame him for getting in the end zone. You got you to score and you get a chance to score. Yeah, you could have taken some time off the clock. I, I think they scored on first down after that. Uh, after the um, It was an offsides penalty, I think, gave them a first down, first and goal, after what, what looked like a fumble by Kyle Trask. But gosh, to get just give away that touchdown um, in whatever it was, 55 seconds, it would have been so such a shot in the arm to to take the momentum into the in the locker room and st- and and to know you're getting the ball back. It's such mm-hmm. a key now. It's that's become a big thing in football. It lasts like ten years. Is score at the end and get the ball back. That's why teams defer now. They used to just they used to win the coach. Yeah, give us the ball. We're gonna go out there and score. Now it's now it's all about strategy at the end of the half and the beginning of the second half, which is you know when when you can really seize momentum of the game. And I think that probably uh uh, uh you know sent. Alabama in with a little charge, obviously, not that they ever need it. They're so robotic. Their personality on the field never seems to change. You don't see a lot of the uh, bad penalties things. Do they have? Yeah, they're 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 not perfect at all, and and they're they're far from the defense that they have been for all these years. But I think that's that's obviously planned. But uh, they're a machine, and when you think about uh, all the great players that they have right now, all those playmakers. Well, let's talk about those three. They, they got more coming. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, a pair, uh, they're, they're going to lose these wide receivers. And what's the guy named uh, John Michi, the guy who hit uh, uh, Trey? Appar- apparently, he's going to be the Devontae Smith next year. They got oh. just one guy, another guy after another, after another, after another. But uh, uh, just an impressive uh, performance uh, by the Alabama offense. But a uh, gut check performance by Florida's offense, I thought. Um, and the, the defense, 52 points, 600 yards, whatever the hell it was, um, uh, that's that wasn't necessarily a surprise given who they're going up against and given what they had put on tape to this point in the season. And you hear a good bit of Oval, you know, what could have been if, if this had, what if they hadn't lost LSU? What if the fumble is now up against Stanham? But in a lot of ways, sort of what you guys just said, I mean, it sort of was a microcosm of Florida's season in the sense that the offense scored a ton of points. But again, defensively, especially on third down, the third down penalties that converted first downs. I mean, in a lot of ways, that game was Florida's season in, in a lot of aspects, right? I think I think so, but I think you can say that about a lot of a lot of what if teams. I think you know when you look back on the on the history of this season, besides the obvious how COVID impacted it, but you look at this Florida team. You know, it's eight and three. It's lost the three games by a combined 12 points. 
So there are a lot of what ifs there because we all know offensively this is the best Florida team. And I mean, I think this offensive is, is better than just as good and better than anything Urban Meyer and really Steve Spurrier, even except maybe for a couple of seasons. I mean, that's the kind of offensive production. Steve Spurrier never had a tight end like this guy, by the way. Yeah, that's what I was saying. <laughs> the kind of offensive production they had, it's historic for the program. I mean, what, 43 touchdown passes for Kyle Trask, over 4,000 yards. Kyle Pitts, you guys just referenced, uh, first-round NFL pick. Trayvon Grimes is going to be a really good NFL receiver. Kadarius Toney, I think, has really established himself as a top NFL prospect. So we saw a lot of special things, and we saw a lot of special things in the Alabama game. So to, to your original point, yeah, it really was symbolic in some ways of this season. Uh, it's going to be, I think, one of the, the great what-if seasons in Gators football history. And they were so close there, and yet so far, I think that's the way the cliche goes, right? You know, talking about individual awards, uh, there's a lot of them that the Gators are, are looking, you know, pretty solid to win, especially, obviously, Kyle Pitts with the Mackey Award. Um, but the big one that everyone talks about all season is the Heisman. Interestingly enough, it won't be awarded until January 5th, even though the voting has been completed as of Monday of this week. Um, I'm curious where you guys think Kyle Trask stands um, it does seem, and again, this is just from, you know, you read the tea leaves. We don't know the votes. We're just guessing. It's like polls, for example. It does seem like Kyle Trask has lost momentum nationally and that it's really all about these Alabama stars, this trio now. Um, what we don't know yet is how does that translate to the actual votes? Because the numbers, the numbers say Kyle Trask. They pretty overwhelmingly say Kyle Trask if we're looking at this as a quarterback award. Now, if you want to go with the wide receiver route and make Devontae Smith the first one since Desmond Howard, that, that's obviously a different argument. But I'm just curious where you guys think Kyle Trask stands relative to, you know, your read of it. You guys know a lot of these Heisman voters. What do you think is going to happen? Well, I think he lost great standing first with the LSU loss, obviously. Uh, and what really I think hurts guys with, you know, his position against the three Alabama players we've talked about You've seen guys who put up Kyle Trask numbers in other seasons win the award, uh, but those guys aren't usually going against their main competitors for the award for the conference championship and didn't lose that head-to-head meeting. So it's only natural he's going to lose a lot of votes uh, because of what's happened the last couple of uh, weeks. I don't know if he was uh, playing for a team that maybe – putting up the astronomical numbers for another school. I, you know, we can go back through the Heisman, like a Doug Flutie, who was – I don't think Boston College was great that year. They were good, but he had that Heisman moment. I'm sure I'm missing some other guys. I don't know what Michigan did the year Desmond Howard won it, the last receiver to win it, but he had that Heisman pose moment after that kick return for a touchdown, I think it was. Mm-hmm. He won it like – early in the season but in that Notre Dame game, yeah. Yeah. So you've had those guys like that who capture the imagination early on uh, beyond their numbers. I think Trask is a guy who's lived and died by the numbers. And when you do that, you you have to win those big matchups. And I think that's why he's probably – it's going to cost him in the, in the end. There's no doubting that Kyle Trask has put an unbelievable season uh, – Brian Johnson was asked, you know, what what's your uh, what, what would you say to someone who needs convincing that Kyle Trash would be in the the Heisman voting? And he says, well, I would tell them I have some oceanfront property in Idaho to sell. 
I mean, so that, that's where he's coming from. He's like, yeah. they're they're totally delusional if they don't think this guy should be in the conversation for the Heisman Trophy. What that will mean uh, in terms of votes, uh, we're all waiting to see. Yeah, I'll go back to Scott's original point. I, I think Kyle Trask um, came back to the pack or, did, or, in essence, lost the Heisman Trophy. It was his to win until the first half of the LSU game. Mm-hmm. You make those three turnovers in that game, your last game in the Swamp, season ender, I mean, it, uh, in a big game like that, I mean, and, and they were, and they were, you know, the pick six and a fumble right at the end of the half, um, you know, his numbers were really good that game, but that was a game probably, you know, people were paying attention to and obviously saw the highlights afterwards. And I, I just don't think there's a wrong answer if you give it to any of the Alabama guys, to be honest with you, I would seriously like to see uh, a wide receiver win it. I'm, I've gotten more, uh, more and more over the years down on the Heisman Trophy because it seems such a uh, – it doesn't always go to the, the best player in college football as it does the marquee, the, the player that gets the most clicks. The flashiest. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's, that, you know, that's right. And, um, and, and, and it's got to be a guy with a ball in his hands, of course. Uh, you know, we've, known, we've all known over the years the uh, best player in the country could easily be a, a, a defensive end or a linebacker or a, certainly an offensive tackle. That's happened before. Um, and, and, you know, it just makes a, I wish they would refer to it as something else, not the best player in college football every year. It's in ter- terms of the, I don't, I don't know what else you could call it. Um, Paul Horning, I did, I do know what was, there were two and seven when he won it. That wouldn't happen anymore. But he was at Notre Dame. He was carrying the ball a lot. He was kicking, he was scoring touchdowns and he was at a, a favored son kind of a, kind of a place. But, um, Kyle Trask had a chance to win the thing and, you know, just calling it like it is, you know, you, you can't lose to LSU. And I'm not talking about individual wars. I'm talking about Florida. I mean, people are saying, you know, people are talking about Marco Wilson and all that stuff. Um, people will probably be have an argument now, and this is different than the Heisman Trophy argument. But if Florida beat LSU, they could be in the uh, uh, could be in that championship, right? Because people are saying because a close lost Alabama, kind of like what Notre Dame did with Clemson, could that have possibly yeah. happened? My deal is uh, Florida would have come into that game nine and one and. Uh, they certainly probably would have had Alabama's attention maybe a little bit more than after coming off a loss to LSU because you know the Alabama people were watching that saying, how they lose to these guys, mm-hmm. right? And I just think there's a whole lot of circumstances that could have been different. So I, I'm, not, I'm one of those butterfly effect guys. Uh, I, I just don't make assumptions. Like Marco Wilson, he doesn't throw the shoe, the Gators win the game. How do we know that? Yeah. Right? There's still a lot of things that can happen, like another turnover by the quarterback, for, for mm-hmm. example. Um, yep. Kyle Trask had a Heisman Trophy worthy season. I just think uh, the circumstances, both team wise, certainly team wise, and the results of the last couple of games probably will keep him from being that four statue there uh, out in front of the stadium. So Florida is not in the playoff, um, but they are in the New Year's Six. It's the third straight year. And you know, regardless of what people say, these are the games that you're supposed to be. And these are this is the benchmark that's been set as of 2014. If you're in one of these six games, it means you are playing for something, and this is important. Um, and also, you know, Florida gets a really attractive matchup. I think one thing we always look at with these is, oh, will they be excited to play? Well, you know, was you was Auburn excited to play UCF a few years ago? No, I think that was pretty clear. I think Florida Oklahoma has a lot of cool storylines around it. Um, another one of which has just been provided by James Houston, uh, who decided to, <laughs> to put some some trash talk out there that was picked up by by ESPN. Uh, but I'm I'm curious for you know for you guys' thoughts on on this Cotton Bowl as sort of the last ride for uh, possibly for Kyle Trask. We know that Kyle Pitts won't be there uh, at the time we're recording this. Everyone else is still supposed to be there. Um, but you know, this is an opportunity to to end this season on a positive note, to beat a you know a 
big name team that's in that playoff many years and to continue building toward, uh, you know, the, the future and, and what's next. Yeah, I mean, the Gators can, you know, cap it off with another New Year's Six Bowl win for the third straight season, like you said earlier. That's a significant improvement uh, to where this program was in the last decade. For Florida to be a championship program, you, you're right. You have to be on the New Year's stage uh, in these bowl games that matter. Uh, Dan Mullen has got him back there. He finally got him into the SEC championship game this season, won the East. You continue winning these bowl games. It's great exposure for your program. Uh, they're talking about your program to uh, maybe some guys that you can keep adding up in the recruiting trail, and suddenly you're you're playing in the, the college football playoff, which is going to be the ultimate goal. So uh, if you're Dan Mullen and his staff, I mean, I, I, don't, I don't think it should be too hard of a sell for these guys. He said uh, earlier this week, you know, he was asked about that. And his, his response was, well, you know, this is why you come here. If you don't want to play in these games, you should probably go to another school where they don't have to worry about it. So that's that's why you come to Florida. It's an Oklahoma-Florida matchup that has some historical value to the fans. Uh, these guys who are on this team now, I mean, quite frankly, I think they were probably five or six, seven <laughs> years old when that happened. But, you know, 2008, uh, these two programs determined a national championship. You know, that was one of the, uh, what, Florida's third national title in program history, their last national title. Mm -hmm. uh, it's also, coincidentally, the last uh, year the Gators won the SEC championship. So uh, there's a lot to talk about around this game. Lincoln Riley at Oklahoma, he's got a great offense. They, they put up some really big numbers out there. Dan Mullen of Florida's coming off a historic offensive season, so we might see another – uh, a kind of shootout that we've seen a lot this year. So that's, and it's also in Jerry world, man. I mean, yeah. we've been there, Chris, for basketball and football. That's right. Scott mentioned the historical significance relative to Florida and Oklahoma playing for the national championship uh, 12 years ago. What's well, historical significance? Florida's never been to the Cotton Bowl. So, yeah. um, I mean, has that has a brand name, the Cotton Bowl. Florida and Oklahoma are brand football names. So uh, this is a, it's a marquee matchup. I would have, I would imagine it will be a, a very well-watched uh, football game. Got potential to have the kind of uh, uh, shootout theme that the game did the other night, just knowing how, how Oklahoma plays and what goes on in that, in that, in that league that they play in and, and how Florida plays. So if guys want to opt out between now and the game, I mean, that's, that's certainly their decision, and that's a decision that the coaching staff will respect. But uh, the players that step up, um, I mean, Kyle Pitts isn't playing – so Keymore uh, uh, Gamble, Key, uh, Zipper, those, those guys have a chance now to step into a, in a really big stage and make something happen. Uh, I hope Florida's, uh, the rest of Florida's um, high power players play. Uh, but if they don't, um, um, those other guys will have uh, plenty of reason to get up for this game. And I, you know, I think Dan Mullen will know how to pitch this game as, as, a, as a game that a lot of people will be watching. You know, another thing you always look at with games like this is the opportunity to have a, a positive impact on recruiting. Um, and, and to touch on a, you know, a, a few tough stories this week for the Gators, there's really no way around that. Um, Scott, let, let's first talk about the, the Dan Mullen uh, recruiting situation and some of the, the sanctions from the NCAA. Um, just if you can tell us a little bit of the background on this, sort of where it is now and, and what it means for the Gators moving forward. Yeah, I mean, talking about a uh, NCAA announcement that was under the radar, obviously not so much to the top of the Florida food chain with, you know, Dan Mullen, Scott Strickland, but, you know, in terms of media coverage or fan 
knowledge. I mean, it was kind of a, what's the word? I think it was a little bit of a bombshell when it was first released, you know, on Tuesday that, you know, Florida uh, was placed on a year's probation. Uh, it was for basically a couple of instances of improper contact with a, a, a recruit uh, between Coach Mullen in his presence uh, and another coach, and then also a seven-on-seven team uh, that had stopped by Gainesville and had some contact, I think, with Florida, you know, some members of their staff or either the recruiting department. In retrospect, you know, after I went through it and I really looked at what was what was in the report and also just how the media was covering it, you realize this isn't that it, it was it was surprising in that it's Florida. And, you know, Florida has a very good track record within NCAA compliance. That was obviously a huge point of emphasis for Jeremy Foley's whole 25-year tenure as AD because, as we know, the Gators in the 1980s, they they certainly had their uh, difficulties with some NCAA issues. Uh, but that has a really good, clean record, and now here it is. You know, this is the first really slap they've had in 30 years or so, and again, under the radar, so it caught people by surprise. The, the reality of it is, Adam, it's, it's not it, – a lot of the punitive damages were actually served this season, uh, and some of them uh, are dropped off or the fine that had to be paid. All that stuff's clear. But the biggest thing that the headline was, Dan Mullen has a, a show cause, which is almost – it's kind of almost in real-world terms, like being on probation for a year, you know, for for his role in this. And, and Florida, Florida was on probation a year if this this year. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I'm saying, and this is like a singular, just a personal probation. So it's not really. If you're a casual fan turning into the Gators, you're watching this program. I don't think it's going to impact the program on a any real level, other than I guess it's a, 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 a maybe a stain to Dan Mullen or or uh, to the Gators program because they had such a clean record. And whenever I see these kind of stories, I, there was a very similar one earlier this year, and I've read in depth it's really almost identical to what happened with Jimbo Fisher and Texas A&M last summer. It even involves reportedly the same player and the same <laughs> school. Wow. So there, it's a really interesting story. I think insiders know that it's, it's serious in terms of NCAA compliance. But I don't know what the severity of on the program long term. I don't think there's a lot of concern there. Most importantly, Scott Strickland, uh, you know, he said that after looking at this and, you know, hey, we made a mistake. Compliance is important to us. But at the same time, you know, there's no concerns that there's systemic compliance issues at Florida. And that was his main message. And I think that's something that Gator fans can rest assured in that there's not and uh, but again, made national headlines, made news. It's something that you know Dan Mullen will uh, will have to deal with in the in the Gators. Another uh, difficult story that's been ongoing now for a few weeks is obviously the situation involving Keontae Johnson uh, and the, the Gator basketball program as a whole. Uh, which, you know, as of the time we recorded last week, we didn't know what was going to happen with the upcoming games. Then shortly thereafter, those were all canceled. Um, now, obviously, the next thing on the docket is the start of SEC play. And uh, Chris, I guess just the, the latest you can tell us about Keontae and also about you know, the program. This is affecting not just him and his family, but an entire team that really, really cares about this guy and, and counts him you know, among their, their most important players. 
just knowing a little bit about what I know, um, once the guys found out that they weren't didn't have to deal with playing a game, uh, that they were going to be able to go home and go see their families, um, I would imagine that must have been a, a, a kind of something of a relief for them. Now, basketball wise, you you know you lose you lose three games, and now uh, presumably he'll come back from Christmas having seen. Now, Keontae Johnson has been released from the hospital. He put an ad. The school put an ad in the Tallahassee Democrat on Wednesday, thanking uh, Florida State and all the people at Tallahassee Memorial Hospital for what they did. I mean, all, all this stuff, this, you know, everything's been encouraging uh, mm-hmm. with regard to his health and, and certainly, certainly what we know, the fact that he's been able, he'll be able to spend um, Christmas with his, uh, with his family uh, in his home in Gainesville is a good thing. Now, as far as basketball, uh, Florida will report back and you got to come back and go right into COVID protocols. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, uh, can't practice right away. I don't believe they have to refocus. They'll know when they take the court, both for practice and for games next time, Adam, that, that their friend, uh, one of the most popular players on the team, if not the most popular player on the team is doing well. And I, I assume maybe eventually we'll be, we'll, we'll join them in terms of being around the program again. But uh, this is all conjecture on my part. Um, I think we'll we'll know more about stuff when Mike White or Scott Strickland or or Duke Warner, the trainer, can start answering some questions. But uh, right now, that's uh, all they care about is what's good for Keontae and uh, to do right by the wishes of the family. And let's get through Christmas and see what happens after that. Yeah, but thankfully, lots of good news. Uh, ever since the news was so bleak, it has improved every single time, positive signs and improvement. So uh, certainly Gator Nation continues to follow that closely and everyone is, is rooting for Keontae. Um, I want to turn our attention now to our PAT. Uh, and this this is, we're not reinventing the wheel here because it's what everybody's talking about. But I am curious as to uh, grizzled old veterans, how you guys feel about the college football playoff in, in the year 2020. Um I think we've had a lot of years where we felt like, oh, there was, you know, this was a miscarriage of justice. This team should have been in, but it does seem to, to some extent that we're getting to maybe a, a, you know, a breaking point here where the system is no longer, is no longer working because there's too many teams that have a rightful claim that are being left out and the decisions are called into question. Um, I guess question one, did they get it right this year? And if the answer is no, then how could they have gotten it right? Or is the system itself just not robust enough to support what needs to happen? You just asked, how do we feel about the college playoff system in 2020? It feels like the same as 2019 and 2018, the same teams in it every year. <laughs> and so so from, from that standpoint, um, I don't think it's very exciting. I think something has to be changed. And it's, it seems pretty obvious to me, you just double the field, mm-hmm. if, if not quadruple it. And I know... That's controversial, and I know that has a lot to do with the uh, you know time constraints on the student athlete or whatever. But you know, there's a lot of people uh, that they they bypassed uh, some of those concerns before for other things. So um, put more teams in an 18 playoff. I mean, what are we talking about now? Are we talking about Cincinnati, right? Yep. We're talking about who else? Are we talking about? We're possibly talking about the Gators. I don't know. We're certainly talking about Texas A&M. Yeah, I'm talking about a, a Pac-12 champion. Maybe who knows? Maybe we're talking about Coastal Carolina. I don't know. If we're t- if we're talking about a 16-team playoff, then we're definitely talking about them. Um, especially in a in a in a year like this, I think this would have been a great year to uh, experiment a, m- a little bit, like uh, the NFL has said it's doing, or 
like Major League Baseball did, maybe the, or you know basketball did with the bubble, or whatever. But just something different. Maybe this would have been the time. But then again, given the co- what's going on with COVID, uh, would have been a hard sell. But um, something has to change. Uh, you can just kind of say right now, the uh, if it doesn't change, the 2021 when that is announced, it's going to be Alabama, Clemson, Ohio State, and somebody else. I, I, you know, and and nobody wants to go through that anymore. I agree totally. I think the. The honeymoon is finally over for the college football playoff as we know it. Uh, four teams. You know, the concept was so new at first, guys. I mean, it, it did kind of uh, rejuvenate the sport some, at least uh, the championship stage. Uh, but when you're seeing, you know, Alabama and Clemson and Ohio State every year, I don't, and nobody will ever convince me that Ohio State deserves to be there. They're, they might be really good. I mean, they might be the best team in the field. They might even end up winning it for all I know. But you 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 know you played six games, man. <laughs> I mean, that's, you know, sorry, you played six games. It's true. So and 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 let's remember along the way you said, okay, we weren't playing at all. Yeah. Then you then you said, okay, we're not we're gonna play. We're not letting our. You got to play this many games to get in the championship game. They changed that, and then they said, I think didn't they just change their uh, their COVID protocols from twenty one to seventeen days? So some of these guys can play. So, yeah. That's what I'm saying. I'm talking about the Big Ten. That's right. That's right. But it's sad that the obviously the wrong team from Ohio got into the playoff because I'm putting Cincinnati in there before I put Ohio State if I'm choosing. But hey, you know we're all going to have our opinions on this. It, it's it's fun, but it also gets old when it is the same argument over and over. And I've said from day one, you always knew this thing was going to be advanced to more teams. I think. We've seen enough of the four-team era. Go ahead and turn it up to eight. Uh, there will still be controversy every year for whoever's ninth and tenth. But guess what? The top eight is ninety percent of the time is going to be solid. And um, you know, college football to its to its credit, especially and I'll say this for the Southeastern Conference Commissioner Greg Sinke, I think he's been the most important person in college football this year, uh, just to finding a way. Uh, to stay patient and getting this season off because um, I saw a column last weekend up in Atlanta, you know, the guy said, if it wasn't for the SEC, there would be no college football this season. And I believe that that 100%, uh, they, you know, they followed their lead. Uh, so if they can adjust and do all this stuff to get a season off in, in 2020, solving the college football uh, future shouldn't be a problem. At some point, G5 has to be recognized, don't they? Yeah. I, you know, that's why Cincinnati's the first one to me that yeah, you know, I wasn't ever at UCF. I could have gone or with them or without them a couple of years ago, but I thought Cincinnati really deserved it. You know, they're what two hours from Columbus. You got all these people up in Ohio State celebrating right now. They're back in the playoffs. So if I'm at Cincinnati and your head coach just was at uh Ohio State, he's building his program there. They played three more games. And in this season, I mean, who knows? I haven't gone game by game, but I'm guessing their schedule was probably every bit as tough as Ohio State's six-game schedule. I have to say, and earlier this week, I saw what may have been the, the greatest tweet of the college football season. I retweeted it, and I'll, I'll read it to you guys right now. It says, a G5 could possibly make the playoffs if they ran the table on this schedule. Ready for the schedule? <laughs> that at Clemson, at Ohio State, at Notre Dame, at Kansas City – at 85 Bears, <laughs> 85 Chicago Bears, at actual Bears, I love that, at the USS Nimitz, at the Avenger, at a volcano. I love this one. 
home against the Citadel. <laughs> got to have your bye game, and then you finish at Alabama. So uh, uh, kudos to that guy. Yeah, as long as they don't stumble against the volcano, they're good. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, you know, the volcano. I mean, it's it's like a you know it's a tweener kind of game. Volcano and then you know Citadel. You know, I don't know. Oh man, that <laughs> is pretty funny. Yeah. That was great. And, and I, I will say, just to close this, I say this every year. I'm going to keep saying it until it happens. The system is already there. It is The infrastructure is already there. You have a New Year's Six. An 18 playoff would require six games and then a championship game. So you would rotate between your quarterfinals and your semifinals the same way they currently rotate between their semifinals and their regular New Year's Six. You would have those marquee bowls hosting the semifinals and the quarterfinals, and then you would have a site that would be the national championship, which you do now, which is currently farmed out and goes all over the country. So it's it's so simple. They they built the infrastructure and then decided not to use it uh, to its fullest extent, which is, I think, maybe the, the most ironic part of it all is that the New Year's Six is set up to do this, but they're not maximizing the potential for it. So sure they build it that way. Uh, they had a timetable on it. We all know, but I think sure. it's time to move up that timetable. Yeah, it's probably it probably doesn't happen next year. It might not happen you after that, but you have to think within the next four or five years. Ultimately, that that's what we head to. We'll see. We'll see. But uh, guys, a, a very uh, a very robust discussion today. Covered a lot of ground. A lot of good stuff. Uh, our final podcast chat of this this very strange year. So thank you guys as always. We encourage everyone to check out FloridaGators.com for their latest content. Uh, also at Gators Scott at Gators Chris on Twitter. They've got the Cotton Bowl. They've got all the news about Gator basketball. What's going to happen going forward? The start of the SEC. Keontae Johnson. You name it. You know where to find it. Uh, Chris Scott. Thank you guys so much, and a happy New Year to you. Thanks, Adam. I right, thanks, Adam. The Dan Mullen era has seen the return of the kind of offensive playmakers the Gators were known for during Urban's days with stars like Percy Harvin, Lewis Murphy, Jeff Demps, and more. They were so loaded, it was easy to overlook players like David Nelson, who arguably had more opportunities in the NFL than he did in college. But what he lacked in quantity, he made up for in quality, including his role in one of the signature plays in Gator lore against Oklahoma in the 2008 national title game. We spoke to David for our Gator Great series over the summer and wanted to share this extended chat, beginning with his early days battling adversity off the field before finding his footing on the gridiron. Growing up for me was, um, it, was, a, it, was it was a challenge for sure. I uh, grew up, I'm the oldest of eight, so wow. my family is a, it's a very big family and uh, we're also very close. I like to say we're the most functional, dysfunctional family you've ever seen. Uh, <laughs> went to like 16 or 17 different schools in a 12-year span. Wow. We lived in four different states. I mean, you would think we were army brats, but it was just one of those things where we just moved around and just never never really around long enough to really make friends. Uh, and so kind of sports was how I, where I sank my teeth into and in, in ways that I was able to, to socially find friends and find ways to, to meet people. And, and that was just kind of my haven. That was kind of my safe place with all the the craziness of, of moving and changing schools and trying to make new friends kind of sports was my constant sports was the thing that I kind of saw from an early age was something that I really enjoyed. and was really good at. And so just through, through it all and through all the, the changes and, and crazy circumstances that I grew up with and uh, things I had to deal with sports was the kind of the one thing that I always knew was, was mine. And, and so just growing up in Texas and, you know, Oklahoma, different places, grew up playing soccer and baseball and all the sports except for football 
believe it or not, I was always a skinny kid. So my parents didn't feel comfortable enough, you know, putting me out there, even though I was, I mean, I was a huge Cowboys fan, man. I grew up in the, in Dallas during the nineties. And so, you know, everybody was doing it. I mean, it right. was Emmett Smith, Michael Irvin, the, uh, Troy Aikman, all those guys. And, and growing up, just a huge fan of the game, just not being able to play it. And so, uh, we moved to a small town here in Texas for eighth grade. And that's when I was finally able to play football for the first time. And I, I'll never forget catching my first punt and taking it to the house and the fr- first game, touching the ball five times, scoring four. Wow. Um, and just really realizing that there was something here um, and really enjoying it. It's just one of those things where it was kind of just second nature to me. Like I said, growing up, watching it, understanding the game mentally, uh, understanding all the different facets of the game, but for the first time actually being able to play it was was uh, was something else. And so, yeah, man, just was able to continue that and to continue growing in that, growing going into high school, kind of started to figure out, okay, if I really want to make something in, in sports, kind of football is my ride, my ticket there. And so started to kind of harness a lot of my attention, a lot of my focus and effort into football. Uh, even though I played basketball, you know, my freshman, sophomore, junior year and ran track and did all those things, but those are more of just a means to an end to kind of get myself prepared and stay in shape for football. But uh, definitely growing up in Texas, I never imagined going and playing in the SEC, never imagined going to play for the University of Florida. Uh, it's just kind of crazy how it all came together. Mm. What role did your, your siblings play kind of in your athletic career? I mean, you could almost make up, uh, you could make up at least, you know, an entire starting 11 out there. Um <laughs> Were they a big part of? Was it? Were you guys all competing in sports together against each other? Like, how, what was that dynamic like? Oh yeah, I mean, I, I have, there's two brothers who are closest to me in age, and we're all a year and a half apart. And so, you know, there were there were spans where just the timing just played in our favor to where we were able to be on the same teams together, or um, you know, even if we weren't on the same teams, we were all in the same sport during the same season, and so. Uh, you know, we were always practicing together and, you know, being the oldest, I was, I was always the kid that wanted to go and play with the older kids. Mm-hmm. I was an eight year old wanting to go play street football with the 12, 13 year olds and try to hold my own. And, and so, you know, my little brothers were always tagging along and they were always the, the annoying little brothers that wanted to hang out with big brother. And, <laughs> and so I, you know, it was one of those things where I just had to always you know, put them in the place a little bit, <laughs> <laughs> but we had a fun, fun sibling rivalry. I mean, we, we, we were always, I mean, I always had two built-in best friends that I could just, if I wanted to go to, uh, you know, we didn't have a whole lot going on at home. We didn't have a lot of money. We didn't have, uh, you know, a lot to call our own. And so to keep ourselves busy and stay out of trouble, we'd just go and pick up a basketball and walk to the park and, and just pick up a, a street basketball game. And, you know, luckily I didn't have to, call any friends i just had two brothers that i can bring with me and we play two on one or play horse and and so i just had some built-in friends but also had some built-in competition that we were always challenging each other we were always uh encouraging each other supporting each other but also trying to beat each other and so to this day they still have not beaten me in anything really i was gonna ask if, if you still if you won consistently I think there's like this older sibling edge that you have mentally over your younger siblings that for whatever reason they just can't get over it um now they, I, they, like one of them is really artistic and very very musically gifted so he's beaten me in those elements uh but when it comes to sports i've always been able to hold my own and and, and hold my edge but but they, they were definitely an instrumental part i mean it, it would have been very difficult for me to try to keep that that motivation keep that edge by myself um but just having my little brothers that were all they were at every single one of my sporting events they were at every single one of my practices uh, they were always my biggest fans. And, uh, you know, even when I went to the University of Florida, they never missed a game when they could make it. And just having that 
having a support system, having that, uh, there's that built in home life that I could, you know, at the practice, come home and like talk to my little brothers about, Hey, you know, coach told me this, let me go practice on it. And having somebody that was actually there, that was actually, you know, challenging to me to, to help me with it. And so I was very fortunate in that area that even though we had a lot of craziness and a lot of chaos going on at home and in our life, uh, the three of us specifically were able to kind of rally together and kind of bond because of that. And in a lot of, in a lot of ways that was done through sports. Hmm. You know, I, I had a lot of friends growing up that were more athletically gifted than me, which wasn't difficult to be, but I would try and come up with like new competitions, trying to figure out things I could create that I could beat them in. Did, did your, did your little brothers, like what's, what's the craziest idea they ever had for a competition that they tried to basically rig so that they could win? Uh, the two on one, it got to a point where it was, you know, it got to a point where I was one-on-one. It wasn't it was more so because they were younger than me and just smaller than me and, specifically in basketball, you know, it's right. just size and height and speed and athleticism. That's half the battle right there. And so it got to a point where it was two on one. And so they definitely, and I, I was kind of one of those people too, where I like to be challenged. Like I said, even though I was, I was an eight year old, I didn't like to play with kids my age. I like to play with kids who were better than me. I was always trying to find something that was challenging me that, that made me uncomfortable. And so well, most of the time, it wasn't my brothers actually trying to stack the cards against me. It was more of myself trying to find ways to stack the cards against me so that I could find ways to get out of it, find ways to, to compete and to win. Uh, we were very competitive with each other. I mean, it was it, it got it got aggressive a few times. Um, but for the most part, they would try to find ways that they could team up. We would do like WWE wrestling matches, and it would always be them being a tag team partner against me being <laughs> by myself. And, and so I was always kind of on my own, and that's kind of how it's – on my own in the midst of uh, community, in the midst of, the, of their their presence. And it was just something that, you know, I was always trying to find ways to challenge myself. And they were always just trying to collude against me to, uh, to take down the champ, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> I really hope they listen to this. <laughs> yeah, I hope they do too. Um, we'll, we'll, give, we'll give them some credit for turning you into the competitor that you ultimately became, right? They, they, can, they can lay claim to that. Absolutely. I mean, you never get to the position that you're in on your own. I mean, when you, anytime you're a Division One, Two, Three athlete, if you get to the college level and you're playing, uh, playing in a, in a competitive environment like that, you didn't get there on your on your own. And a lot of who I am, a lot of the the accomplishments that I was able to achieve is because of you know my my little brothers and my family being able to to challenge me, to encourage me. You know, if I failed, they were there. there they were the first ones there to be able to say like, you know, you got this. You're gonna be better. You don't let it. Don't hang your head. Or if I succeeded, they were the first ones to give me a hug and to clap and to tell me that they're proud of me. And, you know, that's something that you just can't really put into words how, how much that means to you and how, how important that is. Just as a, especially growing up to establish that foundation so that you can go off to college and, and become the man that you want to be, become the athlete that you want to be. And so I, I owe a lot of who I am and a lot of the things I was able to do to them. You, you said that when you were growing up, you never imagined you'd one day be playing at Florida in the SEC how did that ultimately come together? What do you remember about the recruiting process and, and from where you were kind of bounced around a lot landing in Texas? How does Florida get on your radar? Man, they didn't actually come onto my radar until the last minute. Um, I had committed to University of Notre Dame originally my junior after my junior year and uh, to Tyrone Willingham. So I, I was set on going there. I loved it. I was going to be a Golden Domer. And, and uh, my senior year, they fired Tyrone and brought in Charlie Weiss and and because of that, we we reopened up our our um, our recruiting, and up until that point, I think Urban was at Utah mm-hmm. and had recruited me a little bit there. But to be totally honest with you, like Notre Dame was just Notre Dame. I didn't want to go somewhere cold. I didn't want to go somewhere that was going to be, uh, you know, 
less than 80 degrees. <laughs> <laughs> I was from Texas. I wanted to go to a warm weather school. I was looking at schools like UCLA, Texas, Oklahoma State. I had no connection to Florida. I had no connection whatsoever. Um, and when they fired Tyrone, brought in Charlie, I reopened up my uh, my recruiting was about the same time that Urban had accepted the job over at Florida. Receivers coach Billy Gonzalez was a good friend of my high school coach and had recruited me to Utah. And uh, when they took the job at Florida, and I was remember I was at the U.S. Army All American game. Uh, he called me and from a three five two area code, and I was like, I have no idea where in the world this <laughs> number is coming from. Um, so I answered it, and he was telling me a little bit about like what they were wanting to do at Florida, and I was really excited about you know that offense that Urban had, had with Alex Smith and and some other guys over at Utah, and it was that new, edgy, uh, innovative offense that was kind of I felt like it was going to be great for me. I just didn't know anything about Florida. I loved Urban. I loved his system. I just didn't know anything about Florida. I mean, growing up in Texas, it's all Big Twelve. You know, a little bit of packed. I guess it was Pac-10 at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, so I just didn't have a whole lot of ideas. But, you know, as they started kind of opening up the door a little bit, uh, I mean, they literally offered me a scholarship probably three, four weeks before signing day. So it was last minute. I, I mean, I he called me and they put on the full blitz. Like My dad was like, I really like what they have going on there. I was really interested and intrigued by the offense, by the system. And, um, you know, when it really came down to it, all the schools I was looking at, you know, they were all kind of, rebuilding projects it was really important to me to go somewhere where i could kind of put my stamp on a program to be able to come in and be a part of something that wasn't already established that wasn't already at the top of the college football world but to come in and and really be a part of the grunt work really be a part of the the ground floor of building something special and just the energy that urban brought in and uh, at the time i i just i had three schools in texas oklahoma state and ucla that i just couldn't decide from i just didn't really feel right about it and for whatever reason, when, when every time I talked to Coach Meyer, just the things that he was saying, it was just like, yes, I want to be a part of that. Yes, I want to be a part of that. And then when we flew in for the spring game for the first time being in campus there, I remember my dad and I looked at, looked at each other and just like, it just felt, just felt like home. It just felt right. And we said from the entire, from the very beginning that we were just going to go where we felt the most peace, go where we felt, uh, felt right. And that's where it was. And so it really was, I mean, I, I had spent probably two years getting to know the coaches at Texas, two years, three years getting to know the coaches at Oklahoma State. And here it was, Urban and Billy coming in the 11th hour with a month ago before signing day and kind of swooped in and, and took me. And, and man, it was, uh, I haven't looked back since. <laughs> wow. You mentioned some of your teammates from back in the day. Which guys are you most able to keep in touch with today? And, and what are those relationships like these many years, this many years after uh, what you guys did together? Well, for some of them, I mean, luckily with social media, you're able to stay connected and you're able to, to stay plugged into a lot of what's going on. You know, there's guys like Lewis Murphy. I just talked to him the other day. A guy like Riley Cooper, uh, who I talked to the other day. Uh, and that's what's so cool about our relationship with what the relationship is like with all of us is that, you know, you could not talk to him directly for months or years. But when you see each other, it's like you never left. And, and there's such, 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 such a special bond, such a special thing that um, you know, you don't have to necessarily stay in communication with each other to be able to, to stay close with them. And so it's uh, when I was playing, when I was in the NFL, like it was it was it was weird having to play against those guys. But also at the same time, like after the game, we'd all uh, sometimes we were always the last ones to leave the field just because we had to catch up and wanted to tell each other how proud of each other we were. And, uh, you know, when you're watching film on your opponent, you always watch. I remember playing. Uh, Cleveland. And, and even though Joe wasn't going to be guarding me, I wanted to watch him and I wanted to see like, how's, how's Jojo doing? And so there's just this, there's just this connection, this bond that, that we have that's uh, you can, you can't find anywhere else that you can't really explain because uh, it's just one of those things that 
we went through so much together. We did so much together that nobody else knows but us. And, and that's something that we'll always be able to, to rally behind and, and will always make us close. Hmm. You talked earlier about, you know, when you, you grow up in the circumstances that you did, you, you get used to people counting you out and doubting you. And, and you're just, you know, devoted to, to proving people wrong. When it came time to get to the next level, what do you remember about, you know, going through the draft, not getting your name called, but then ultimately fighting your way onto a roster? There was a, a, a tag phrase that Coach Meyer used to use, and it was called competitive excellence. And it means doing your job when your number's called. And for me, that really became a way of life, uh, specifically my junior year. I mean, I didn't know when my number would be called. I could run at the end of the year there. I could run 50 plays, but only get one catch. And you better believe that if I was only going to get one catch, I was going to make the most of it. And that if when it came down to it, that my teammates were going to trust and believe that if the ball was coming to me or if I had a job to do, I was going to get it done. Um, And so I carried that over with me being undrafted, you know, early on during minicamp and rookie minicamps, undrafted players don't get a whole lot of reps. They don't get a whole lot of attention. They're kind of just there to be bodies. They're kind of be there to be the scout team. But I made it a mission. I mean, I committed that, you know what, I'm not going to worry about who's in front of me on the depth chart. I'm not going to worry about uh, all these people that have all these high accolades and, you know, all making all this money. I'm going to control what I can control. If the meeting start meeting time start at 7 p.m., I'm going to be there at 655 because I'm not going to let something that's within my control contribute to my demise. Um, if I only get five plays, five reps in practice, I'm going to make sure that I am standing out on tape. I'm going to make sure that I'm in the right place. I'm, I'm where I need to be. If the ball is thrown to me, I'm going to catch the ball. And so I did that. And five reps turned into six. Six reps turned into eight. Eight reps turned into 12. And before you know it, I was running with the first team uh, a month into my, my rookie minicamp. And a lot of it was because, I, I mean, like I said, I got to practice against Joe Hayden and Janoris Jenkins and Ahmad Black and, and, and Major Wright in practice. And so when I, got to co- when I got to the NFL, yes, it was a little faster. And yes, it was, uh, there was more athletes uh, on the football field. But in a lot of ways, I was prepared. I was ready. A lot, a lot of the things I learned at, at Florida uh, about how to practice, about how to approach the game, about how to, to study film. Uh, it was just kind of just business as usual when I got to the next level. And I think there's a lot of guys that I played with that our rookie year, we just kind of stepped onto the field and, and made an impact. And we all looked at each other and said, it's because of what we learned at Florida. It's because of the things that we went through at Florida. Um, and specifically for me being undrafted that, you know what, you can tell me I can't do it, but I control that. I control whether I do or I don't. And I just, I just made a mission to be able to con- contribute uh, however I could, just like I did when I was at the University of Florida. What what moments, what memories stand out when you think about your NFL career specifically? Oh, I remember my, our second year um, in Buffalo, go starting the year 4-0. Uh, this third game of the year, playing Oakland, uh, being down, I think, 17 nothing at halftime, or being down 17 points at halftime, and, and coming back, and specifically that last drive, I think I caught five passes and ended up winning, ended up catching the game-winning touchdown uh, for, for, for only like three seconds left. Uh, man, that, that's that's something else. I mean, just to, to be able to play in the NFL and then to catch a game-winning touchdown in the NFL and mm-hmm. to get your team to 3-0 and in the city of Buffalo, man, that is such a beautiful city. And those people have been through so much uh, <laughs> in their time as Bills fans. And, and to be able to, to catch a game-winning catch and to go 3-0 and at home and uh, just that city was, was electric, was buzzing. And then the following week, you know, playing against New England and being able to beat New England at home and, and going 4-0 and uh, just just that city and what it was like and being able, just uh, being a part of that 
was something that, you know, growing up, I always dreamed of playing in the NFL. I always dreamed of being a professional athlete. And now not only was I living my dream, but I was playing at a very high level. And, you know, it was just, um, gosh, it was, it was something I'll never forget. Mm. It always comes that time uh, for athletes when uh, I know basketball players like to say the ball stops bouncing. Um, what, what do they? What do they even say in football? What's what's the what's the the phrase that most similar to that? I was trying to think of what it was and I couldn't figure it out. Um, I don't know because a lot of guys in football don't have that choice. Right. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the game kind of makes it, or the front office kind of makes that decision for them, so they're right. never really able to get to that point. Right. When, when did you realize that, you know, it was time to step away, that it, it was, you know, time to move on to the next phase of your life? Uh, I think it was after the season when I was in Pittsburgh, my last year, my sixth year, and I tore my labrum. And two years prior to that, I had torn my ACL. And I just gotten to the point to where it was, for me, just looking at the quality of life for myself, realizing that there was so much that I wanted in life. I love the game of football. I love everything that it's, it's uh, provided to me. But at the same time, like I, I, I did realize at that point that I was more than just an athlete. I was more than just a football player. And after being injured and having to go through another surgery, I kind of took a long, hard look and thought, you know, is this something that I want to do again? You know, you're seeing guys like Andrew Luck, um, yeah. Patrick Willis, you know, who get to that place where it's just injuries just wear you down, man, and just takes away from the love of the game and takes away from being able to be in the locker room with the guys who you love and doing the things you love to do. And um, just having to spend a year rehabbing and just to be able to hopefully get back to the point to place to play. You don't even know if there's even going to be a place for you. Um, but I just remember just at that point, just being so worn down and just exhausted and, and having played six years and realizing, you know, um, is this something, the quality of life standpoint, do I want to continue to do this and put my body through this and not be able to potentially run around with my kids 15 years from now or throw the football around. So I think it just got to the point to where, you know, I wasn't making, uh, you know, $15 million a year. I was, <laughs> I wasn't one of those guys. I was kind of making league minimum. And, and I, I just, I, I had developed so much other, other avenues for myself professionally that it, it was just one of those things where, okay, it's time for me to call it a career right now. And instead of putting my body and, and myself through sub, subjecting myself to uh, all these injuries and, and stuff like that. In terms of, you know, where that, that next step would take you, I read that, that a trip to Haiti had a really big impact in you and, and caused a, a shift in your life back in 2012. Can you tell us about that and, and how it formed the path forward for you? Yeah, it, it just, you know, there's something uh, powerful about being a part of something that's bigger than yourself. And, and I mean that by saying at the time I was in the NFL, I had just finished my second year, which was a really, you know, statistically speaking, uh, a, a good year. And was now looking for something that I could use my platform for to be able to help people or to, to be a positive light in the world. And I went to Haiti and uh, man, met these met these kids who you know were orphan kids. They didn't have a mother. They didn't have a father. And you know, coming from my NFL lifestyle of just worrying about so many material things and just uh, just worrying about things that really just didn't matter. And getting there and seeing them in the midst of their circumstances, in the midst of their their struggles, just had so much joy, had so much exuberance for life. And um, just I remember being there and just being humbled and being just, I just learned so much from those kids. I mean, like I said, the kids who we consider the least of these or the kids who uh, we in our society see as people who don't have much, but yet had more hope and joy in their pinky finger than I had in my entire body. 
And so it just, it just helped me understand that, you know what, a drop pass isn't the end of the world. <laughs> it helped me understand that a loss, even though I'm a competitor and I'm a sore loser and I hate losing, a loss doesn't define me. Uh, it shouldn't, you know, define my, my mood or my personality or how I treat people. Um, that, you know what, even though when all odds are against you, that there's still a way to be able to find hope and there's still a way to be able to find light in the midst of the darkness. And those kids taught me that. And so I was able to come back with a newfound perspective, not only on the game of football, not only on athletics, but in life. Um, it made me a better person, made me a better teammate. It made me appreciate the game because here I am playing this game, a sport that I love, that's given me a, a, a lifestyle that I enjoy. Um, and yet these kids are, are at kids in Haiti are playing soccer on a dirt field with no shoes and no shirt and no dinner that night, but yet are still giving it everything they have. And so it just, it just gave me a newfound perspective and appreciation that every day I walked out to practice, I was going to give everything I had, um, in memory and honor of those kids. Mm. You know, bringing things sort of full circle, can you tell us a little bit about what you're doing today? I know you've got a family of your own, and obviously you've been out of football for you know for a little bit. So, what what does your life look like today? It's pretty crazy these days. <laughs> <laughs> I am a uh, yeah, I have a little boy who is just turned two, and he is man, he's my whole world. He is my little man, and being a father has really really changed my whole life, and it's just uh, it's been a really powerful thing. And I have a little six month old, actually seven month old daughter now. Wow! And who is my has my heart and has my pocketbook and everything else. <laughs> <laughs> um, but you know, and and I I never thought that I'd be content just being a, a parent, being a father. But it, it really is, man. It's 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 been the most beautiful blessing of my life, and I, I'm lucky to be able to. My wife and I run our own e-commerce clothing business that's doing really well right now, and. Uh, I get to do that with her and get to pick my own hours, do my own thing. And, you know, we get to do it ourselves and get to do it together. And so um, it's not football, mm -hmm. but I've been able to find ways to channel that, that competitive drive that I have and be able to find ways to uh, harness my intensity and passion that I used to have in, in the game of football and apply it into our business. And uh, I'm finding that a lot of the things that Coach Meyer taught me a lot of the things that he instilled in me, a lot of the things that he challenged me with um, transcend the game of football. It's more than just football. A lot of what he taught me were life lessons, things that now I'm now instilling in our staff and people who uh, I lead on our team. And, and I also, as a way I parent my children. Um, and so there's just so much of my life now that is just a direct reflection of uh, my time at Florida and my time underneath the leadership of Coach Meyer. Well, David, thank you so much for sharing so many stories with us and, and your journey as well. And uh, we wish you and, and your family a lot of luck moving forward. Hey, man, I appreciate that. Thank you so much. And go Gators. And that's going to do it for this week's show. If you haven't already done so, be sure to subscribe to Gator Tales in the podcast app of your choice. And please leave a review to help us continue to grow. Be sure to come back here next Thursday as we'll ring in the new year with the final episode of our Gator Grade series, The Promise Fulfilled, the story of the 2008 national champions that came to a crescendo the last time Florida and Oklahoma met on the field. Until then, I'm Adam Schick saying stay safe and have a happy holidays.